Well, good morning. Great to see all of you here today. We're going to continue through this beautiful series in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John 17. If we haven't met yet, my name is Ryan. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. If you are a guest, a special welcome to you. We're glad that you're here. I invite you to stick six with us. Stick six weeks. Get to know us a little bit. Let us get to know you here. If this is where you want to be on mission for Jesus Christ, uh, that's where we are as a church seeking his glory, that his name and his fame would be known around the world. And so I'd love to get to know you a little bit better, and, uh, and, and you get to know us. But also, if you are maybe new to church, or you're, you're new to this whole Bible reading thing, we're just grateful that you're here too. Uh, we're grateful that you've come on Sunday morning. We actually have a Bible as a gift you can grab on your way out, or a John journal. That's in our, our Welcome Center. You can take that with you. It's free. Just glad that you're here with us today. All right, John 17 is where we are. As you see on the screen, I've entitled this uh, the, the Real Lord's Prayer, because we often think of the Lord's Prayer uh, where Jesus actually gives a model prayer to his disciples. If you go and you look in the Gospel of Matthew, which we'll actually do at the turn of the year in January, we'll spend some time diving into what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's a model prayer, you know, where Jesus says, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But he also says in there, um, forgive others as you are forgiven, right? Jesus didn't need to be forgiven. He was perfect. He was holy. He was sinless. What he was doing in that moment was giving the disciples a model prayer and ultimately us a model prayer. But I call this the real Lord's Prayer because John 17 is the, the longest prayer, I believe, in the Bible that we have. And it's definitely the longest interaction we have of um, the Trinity where God the Son is speaking to God the Father and they're having this uh, prayer. And so it's an interesting prayer. John, the, the writer of this, is actually kind of leaning in and listening to Jesus as he prays to God the Father. And what's interesting is Jesus is praying for several things. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples in that moment at that time. And then he actually prays for all believers, past and present. And so if you have trusted in Jesus Christ today, this is a beautiful, beautiful passage for you. Because this is something that Jesus prayed for you 2,000 years ago. So in this moment right now that we're going to read, what did Jesus pray for you if you're a believer? And what does Jesus desire for us as a church and as followers of him? That's what we're going to see in this prayer today. So we'll pick up in verse 1 and let's, just like John did, let's lean in and let's listen to Jesus' prayer to God the Father. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. That's the hour where he would be crucified for our sins. He says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to your people who you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them. They have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, 
but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I no longer am in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that is the disciple Judas, that the, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is where Jesus is going to pray for all believers. I do not ask for these only, that's the disciples that were there at that time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see the glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I ask today that as we look at your prayer, that you would help us to trust in your word, that we would hope in the promises that we find in your word, that we would delight in the truth that we have just read, as well as this week even meditate and think about it. God, thank you for praying over us. And this morning, we know that we need you to help us understand this passage. So we ask that your spirit would come and be our teacher this morning. Let me invite you to take just a moment in this silence to pray and ask that God would speak to you. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey or walk, would you ask that God would speak to you through his word this morning. Pray now. Lord Jesus, we desire to believe in you more richly and live in the abundant life that you promised us. So please help us to do that today. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, in this real Lord's Prayer, there's many things that Jesus prays for in here. We're not going to cover them all this morning, but there's three dominant prayers that Jesus prays that I want us to look at, I want us to unpack and see what it means for you and for me, as well as for us as a church. And one of the dominant prayers that Jesus prays, he prays both for himself and for his followers. 
And it's found in the first 10 verses. And it's this. Jesus prays that he and that we would glorify God. Praise that he and we would glorify God. In the first few verses that I read, Jesus is praying for himself in this moment. And then we'll see at the end in verse 10, he prays for all of his followers that they would glorify him. Now it's fascinating, at least for me, as I'm reading this and thinking about this week, he prays that he would glorify God. This is interesting. Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for, like You read it and you would think, Jesus, you're using your last breaths, your last minute, your last hours here on this earth praying for us to glorify you. Like, could we not get something like a little more practical? (laughs) Could we not get something that's maybe a little more helpful for us? Because like, that seems so ethereal and so up here. Like, we're talking about theology and what we need is something to help us in the brokenness in this world. But what I believe is that Jesus, when he prays and asks for, for him to be glorified, What he's doing is he's giving us something extremely practical. Something very, very practical, specifically for us personally as well as in our time. See, this word glory is the word weight. It's the word that something would have value. You would would put something on a scale like like gold and then you would put weights on the other side. and, and, And if it weighed more, it had more value. And that's what we're seeing with the word glory here. And what Jesus is saying is, I want to glorify the Father. What he's saying is, I want the world to be able to see the weight, the value, the significance of an almighty God. And he's praying and he's asking, Father God, as I go to the cross, as I go and I die for the sins of the world, would you be lifted up that a world would see how marvelous you are and how valuable you are. And how glorious you are. And the reason why this is so practical, the reason why this is so tangible, is because we live in a world that's pursuing so many vain glories. And we're dissatisfied. And our hearts continue to remain empty. We feel crushed by the world so much. Because we've put our hope in vain glories that cannot bear the weight of an eternal soul. We can't do it. And Jesus in this moment is saying, I want the world to see, I want the world to know the glory of God, the value of God. The very thing that doesn't shrink and shrivel your soul, but expands it to the glory of the Lord. This is what he's praying. So for many of us who pursue vain glories and continue to find them lacking, it's not that they're bad things per se, but they're not God things. We cannot value our career more than our Savior. We cannot value, we cannot value our, our identity over the one who has created us and has given us the identity. Right? We cannot do these things. All of these things as we pursue relationships over Christ, or political preferences over Christ, or opinions over Christ, all those things will buckle underneath the weight of an eternal soul Because it cannot hold that weight. Only the Lord God Almighty can carry the weight of our souls. So Jesus is giving us something practical here as he prays this. He's saying, I want you to see what is worth giving your whole life for. What is worth living for. What will give you joy and peace. He wants us to see all of those things 
as we look to him and see him lifted up on the cross, he glorifies God. And this is what he does. Now, if you fast forward a little bit and you get to verse 10, he makes this statement, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, this word for, for glorified here, it's still got the root word of that weight, that value, that glory, but this is a, a verb that is applied to our lives. It's an action behind it. And this is a word that we would kind of, maybe some of your, tra- your Bibles have translated it, magnify. It's where we take something that's beautiful and it's glorious and we magnify it. We lift it up. Now, don't be confused as you think about that because when I talk about magnify, we often think of a magnifying glass, all right? Which a magnifying glass, its job is to take something that's really small and to make it look really big, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. That's not what, what I'm saying to you guys. I'm not saying that God is really small and tiny and insignificant down here. So let's try to live our lives as a church to lift him up so he looks big and he looks important. That's not what he's talking about here. The idea of glorified or magnified is more like a telescope. Where we take something that is so vast and so big and so far away seemingly and we magnify it and we bring it close. So it looks unattainable and untangible so far off, the way we live our lives, we bring it near. But you think about it. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Isn't that exactly how Jesus glorified God the Father? Took something, a holy God, an almighty God, something that seemed so distant and so transcendent and so far away, a God that said he is holy, 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 he's set apart. And what he did is Jesus came Being the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, and he took on flesh and he came to earth. So that which seems so distant and far away now is tangible, now is near, now is close. You'd hear people talk about the holiness of God and the justice of God and the love of God. And that seems so ethereal and Jesus brings it low to show the steadfast love of God. He's not a God that says, yes, I see you in your sin and your shame and in your brokenness and in all these different areas of pain in your life, and I sit at a distance. No, he comes and he leans in. And he even prayers or prays in this prayer, man, may I live in such a way that I glorify, that people would see this value. They'd see this weight. They'd see the glory of God. And Jesus did that. He did it. And then he turns and he says, and my followers, I want them to do the same. I want them to glorify God and to lift him high, that people would see his worth. Now, how did Jesus do this? Very practically, it says in verse 4, it says, I have glorified you on earth. How did he do that? Having accomplished the work you gave me to do. How did Jesus ultimately glorify God the Father? He was obedient. He was obedient to what had been said for him to do. What was that what he was called to do? To live a perfect life. To die a perfect death in our place. And it is so important for us to realize Jesus did not just die for you. Jesus died instead of you. That we deserve to die for our sins. And Christ came knowing that we could not save ourselves. And he died in our place to rescue and redeem us. 
This is him lifting high the glory of God, his great love for us as he goes through the cross, that he would die for us. The great justice of God, he's magnifying it, he's glorifying it as he dies in our place. This is what he's doing. And then as he would pray for us in verse 10, it's the same application, that we would be obedient to what God has called us to do. This is how we glorify him. This is how we live for him. My application for this would be this. Let's live intentionally for Christ. And I use that word intentionally, very specific, because you sit here and you say, okay, I've got to obey God's commands. I've got to live for him. We don't fall backwards into that. We live our lives like the tide is pulling us away, further and further away from being obedient to him. And so we have to be intentional to live our lives in such a way that it displays the greatness of God. How do we do that? How can we live in such a way that we display that Jesus is the most important thing to us? Realistically, I mean, have you thought about that? How can we live in such a way that we display that Jesus is the most important thing to us? How can we work our jobs in such a way that people know that Jesus is more valuable to us than our careers? How can we display to a confused world that Jesus is the one that gives us value in our identity? How do we live in such a way that displays that glory? Would we dare, would we dare to be so bold to live in such a way that declares that Jesus is the most important thing to us? And if we do, if so, we'll no longer live our lives for our own ways. We'll realize that Jesus has to be first in every way. First in our thought life, first in our intellectual life, first in our career, first in our sexuality, first in our use of possessions and money. In every single way, he is worthy to be first, for he is the glorious one. So how is it that we're going to declare the glory of God? Jesus in this passage is telling us that his hour has come and that he's doing what God has called him to do. And that is the pinnacle of the glory of God. So what is that pinnacle? What is his ultimate obedience? That he would go to the cross for us. So may we, may we, if that's the most glorious moment that we can highlight, may we remember the sacrifice of the cross. May we sing about the steadfast love of Christ at the cross for us. May we share the good news of the cross of Christ. This is how we're going to glorify God in our lives. But I challenge you to specifically think about your life in the different areas. How will you live in such a way that it will display that Jesus is the most important thing ever? Another aspect that Jesus prays for in this passage is for unity. We see this in multiple verses in this text. But Jesus prays for our unity, and the reason why is because it shows the world God's gospel. Jesus prays for our unity because it shows the world God's gospel. Like I said, it's it's repeated over and over and over in this passage. I hope you saw it when we were reading through it, but encourage you to underline this or mark this. But verse 11, Jesus says this at the end of verse 11. He prays, may they be one even as we are one. And then you skip down in verse 21. 
May they be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in me. Right? And you skip down to verse 22. May they be one, even as we are one. Verse 23. In them and, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus is praying it over and over and over again about unity. Why in the world does Jesus spend so much time praying for unity? This has blown my mind ever since I first discovered it. Like, just realizing that Jesus could pray for anything. Jesus could have said, what I really want is for them to be really good preachers. So I'm going to spend my last moments praying that they'll be great preachers, great communicators. Ah, you know what? Now I'm going to take my time. I'm going to pray that they'll be great evangelists. Like, that is going to be the, the best way for them to, to move forward. So I'm going to pray that they'll be great evangelists. That's not what he prays in that moment. He spends repetitive words over and over again praying for unity. Praying for our unity. And did you see that what the measuring stick is for our unity? Did you catch this? Because that's, that's an interesting measuring stick. It's the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. That's what he continues to use over and over and over again. Verse 11, may they be one, even as we are one. Wow. I mean, that's a different type of unity right there. It's a different kind of connection than we even can fully understand or grasp. And that's what he's calling us to have. Why? Why is Jesus praying so diligently for our unity? Well, he tells us in his prayer, in verses 21 and 23, and the answer is this. The church's unity, the church's unity is the launch pad for the gospel. It's the launch pad for evangelism. Look, in verse 21, may they be one. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the world would believe. They would understand the gospel that Christ came from heaven to earth to rescue and redeem them. And then in verse 21, may they be perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them. Do you realize how much is on, at stake in our unity? Do you realize this? I mean, it's something that we take for granted, and Jesus is praying over and over and over again for unity. And what's fascinating is if you go and you like history, I love reading history. If you go read church historians or even just non-believing historians, they'll tell you that one of the greatest ways that Christianity was able to impact the Roman Empire, the entire Roman Empire, was their unity. It was different. There were rich and poor gathered together under the banner of Christ. There were different races gathered together under the Roman Empire. Different social classes gathered together. Different beliefs about kind of the world gathered together, rallied under the banner of Jesus Christ. I mean, just the disciples. You had Matthew, this tax collector. You had Simon, this zealot, and now they're following Christ together? What in the world? And I know those terms don't matter much to us. We think of the IRS when we think of tax collector. But tax collector would have supported Rome. Their money would have come from the Roman Empire, right? Then you have a zealot. This is somebody that says, no, we don't want to support Rome. We don't want Rome. We want to actually overthrow Rome with, like, knives and daggers, right? That's what they wanted to do. These two polar opposites get together, and they're under the banner of Jesus Christ. This was so far into the Roman government, and it flourished like this. 
Because this is what the gospel does. It transforms diverse people. But then it harmonizes diverse people together. And this is what unified this ragtag group of people was Jesus Christ. The gospel and the mission of the gospel to make it a lost people is what took country boys and city boys and helped them get along. It took government worker and government haters and helped them to get along. Jesus brought salvation to them all and they came and rallied behind it. They knew that they needed this. And this is what the world needed. This is what Jesus does in this moment. Now this is extremely important for us to understand this. Extremely important. We are living in a time and a culture that we are disunified over everything. Of what we believe, what we don't believe, what's right and what's wrong, which political party should we support, which we don't support, how we should educate, how we should not educate, all these things. We are so divided as a culture in all these different areas. And you need to hear this. Jesus will look at you and say, yes, and the church was built for times like this. Was built for times like this. Where a world that's so divided and struggling would look at the church and be like, how are they so unified? How in the world do they get along? How do they love in that way? How do they forgive in that way? A lost world should be looking in at the church right now and saying, I want that. That's what I need. That's what I long for. We are built. The church was built for moments just like this. We cannot be divided. We need to be united under the one thing that matters most. It is the name of Jesus Christ. That is what we rally around. That's what we're unified behind. Now, with this truth, I want to speak first on an individual level, and then I want to speak on a corporate level for us as a church. First, individually. Some of you, you already know that you need this unity. You've longed for it. It's been in your heart, and it's just been difficult. You're like, I, I know I need that. That's a good thing. The Spirit is stirring in your heart to long for that unity. But unity is not found in isolation. You cannot take steps back and isolate yourself and isolate yourself and isolate yourself and expect to find what your heart is longing for. Some of you have been trying to find your wholeness in isolation and going inward into yourself. You're not going to find your unity. You're not going to find your wholeness in isolation. You're going to find it as you go out and give your whole life for others. That's what Christ did. Christ poured out for others. Even in the midst of his sorrow, he was called the man of sorrows. And it didn't make him pull back and become introverted. It made him pour out his life. He didn't look at a broken world around him and be like, oh my goodness, everything's broken and I'm broken, I'm going to retreat. No, he came into it to redeem and to fix it. You're not going to find your wholeness in isolation. You're just not. Christ has called you to be connected and to be unified. This is the priority that he's prayed for. If your happiness is your number one priority, you will never find the happiness that your soul longs for. We need to value the community in the way that Christ's prayer values community, where it's repeated over and over and over again. And you might already have the, the appetite for unity. You might be connected. But I don't want us just to have the appetite for, for unity. I want us to have the disappetite for disunity. Okay? What I mean by that is we can't just say, well, we like unity. No, I want us to hate disunity. I want us to hate it as Christ hated disunity, so much so that he would pray all these things. We have to have a great distaste for it. Let me help you with that, okay? 
This was years ago, one of the first churches I worked at. Um, there were these three guys there. Uh, they, for a living, it was a dad and two sons. They were lumberjacks. They literally would cut down forests. That's what they did for a living. They looked something like this. Those aren't the guys, but something like that. And one day they went out to this uh, land that they were having to, you know, cut everything down on. As they get out there, they shake each other's hands, you know, give each other a hug, and be like, okay, let's figure out how we're going to do this. And they broke down the different areas that they were going to work on in the forest and where they were going to cut. And they're like, all right, break, let's go. So they're out there, and they're working throughout the day. Well, one of the guys, one of the sons, has an accident with a chainsaw, and he actually hits his hand. He severed one of his fingers. And he calls out, and he runs over to his dad, and his dad calls 911, and as the ambulance is on its way there to, to help him, the ambulance tells him, hey, if you can go find the finger, maybe we can reattach it. And so go out there and look for the finger, and then have your son wait right, right by the road, and we'll get there. And so the, the brother and the dad went over there, and they're looking all throughout the forest to try to find you know, where the finger is, and, and then they find it, and they're like, ah, oh, there it is. Which, this alone is just a nasty story right now, right? It's, just, it's gross to think about, right? Well, they find the finger, and uh, the son, the brother, rather, the brother's like, Dad, here it is, right here. And Dad's like, yeah, yeah, there it is. Pick it up. He says, I'm not picking it up. You pick it up. And he's like, no, I'm not touching it. Like, there's this moment of, like, who's going to pick it up? Because that's gross. That's nasty. Now, think about this. That is the same finger that they shook as they shook hands that morning. Just a few hours earlier. What's the difference between shaking that hand and touching that finger earlier and then later in that day refusing to touch it? It's disunified. It's severed. It's cut off. There's something that is disgusting about something being severed and removed. And yet we try to, as a church, live disunified and disconnected. You can't do it. You can't do it. For those of us that think we can come to church and we're just going to get a little boost of inspiration that will get us through the week and we'll move on, then you have a broken view of what church is. That's not what Christ said. Christ wants us to be unified. How? Like the Trinity. That we are connected like that. That's a different level of unity. May we have a distaste for disunity just like that father and that brother had as they looked at something that was severed. May we not be okay to live on the fringes and be like, well, we'll come when we want to and we don't want to. No, let's get connected. This is why we have small groups, that we would do life together, that we would know what's going on. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The greatest life change is going to happen in circles, not in rows in here. Christ wants you to be unified, wants you to be connected. And so as an individual, maybe you take those steps forward to be connected to the body of Christ. That's what the Bible describes it as. The church is the body of Christ. May we not be that severed finger. May we be connected and be a part of the church. Now, on a corporate level, let me say this. We as a church, for the four years that I've been here and from the time that I've heard in the past, this church has enjoyed unity. It's been amazing to hear of how God has unified this church. He continues to keep this church unified under the banner of Jesus Christ and his mission and his glory. That's why we exist. That's fantastic. But may we never, may we never presume on unity. When we not assume, well, unity is going to be there and unity is always going to be there. No, may we work to continue to attain and hold on to unity. Unity is, does not just magically happen. It's something you work for. 
And just like a garden doesn't flourish off the memory of a thunderstorm that happened two months ago, but rather on the daily rhythms of rain that fall in the garden. So is it true for us as a church that we have to continue to work on those rhythms of unity week in and week out, year after year, and not presume or lean into just, well, unity always happens. No, there's a reason Christ prayed for it. Because I believe he thought it was one of the, the greatest things that would be attacked. So may we not assume, may we lean into unity. And I want to encourage specifically all of our small group leaders, write down this passage, because I want you this week, as you meet in your small group, to talk about this, because we don't have time to unpack all of this right now. But Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. This is going to tell us practically, very tangibly, how we help to create unity within the church. How we can have a distaste for this unity. And this is what it says in Colossians 3. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Be compassionate. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. He has to say that because he knows that unity is hard. You're going to butt heads, right? So you've got to bear with one another. And for one another, uh, if you have a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You want unity? It's here. In small groups this week, you talk about what it means to have a compassionate heart, what it means to live in humility as a body, as a church, how we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. I mean, that's a, that's a big command. But if we can forgive and bear with one another, man, the fruit of that, the fruit of those actions is unity. And that's what Christ is praying for us. That's what Christ is longing for us. So may we continue in the unity that we've had in the past and strive at it in the years to come. And Jesus didn't just pray for unity. He didn't just pray that we would glorify God. But he also prays that we would be set apart for his mission. You see that in the next several verses here in verses 15 through 18. But Jesus prays that we would be sanctified and sent. That we would be sanctified and sent. And I love verse 15. I love how Jesus says this. He says, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not praying that they would come and believe in me and become Christians, and then as soon as they become Christians, they float up to heaven. This verse right here is the reason why when we baptize, we don't hold people under the water, okay? It's not like we hold people under the water and we wait and we're like, just take them to heaven, take them to heaven now. No, that's not Jesus' game plan. He's like, once you're saved, then you're sent. And baptism in itself, that's what it's doing. Baptism is not the next step on you becoming a believer. What baptism is, is you proclaiming to the world, I believe that Jesus Christ rescued and saved me. And I want everybody to know, because I am saved and now I'm sent. And so some of you maybe haven't even taken that step and say, yes, I want to be baptized. Not to save me, but because I'm saved, I'm sent. And I would encourage you, if you are baptized, we're doing that in the next couple weeks, that you would invite people that don't know Jesus so that they would see and be like, why is that person, why are you doing that? Like, why are you being baptized? Because I'm proclaiming that I'm dead to my old sins and my old ways, and I'm raised to walk in the newness of life. See, he sent us in the world. He's not telling us to come back, build a little fort, walls around us, just sit tight in this dark place until Jesus comes again. No, he calls us to go out into the world. 
But he realizes, he realizes the truth that as we go into a dark world, we as believers are still going to struggle. We're still going to war with sin. We're still going to battle with the sin and the wickedness even within our own hearts. And so that's why he prays for our sanctification in verse 17. He says, sanctify them. Sanctify them in truth. Sanctifying means that God is chiseling away everything that is wrong and broken in your life that you don't need. The things that you're, you're, you're struggling with. He says, I'm, I'm chiseling those things away. And how is he doing it? It says he's doing it in the truth. He says, your word is truth. That's a little piece of what we're doing here every Sunday morning. When we open the Bible and we read it, we're allowing God to sanctify us, to look into our hearts and chisel those different areas in our lives that are sinful, that we need to get out. That's why we read the word and allow it to speak to us. Sunday mornings is not Christian entertainment. This is not what this is. This is a sanctification as we live our lives sent into a dark, dark world. And so may we live in such a way that would say to the world, I'm sent. I'm sent. And maybe you're just as confused as I am of why Christ would look at us and send us. Like, is there not somebody better that can do this? Is there not a a better option for the, the gospel to go to the ends of the earth? And Jesus is saying, no, this is the best option. Just as I was sent, I am sending you. How was Jesus sent? The Father looked at a broken and a hopeless world, and he says, I'm sending a helper. I'm sending an advocate. I'm sending one who is going to bring the gospel to you, the good news that you are loved even in your sin. I can rescue you and sanctify you. That's what he does. That's what Jesus came. And then we, we look at the same world too, and we're like, yeah, it's broken. Yeah, it's messed up. Yeah, there's a lot of hopeless people. Yeah. And just like Christ was sent into that world, so are you sent into that world. So the application for us in this point is this. Let us live holy while we take hope to the world. The holiness we find is in the sanctification in Jesus' prayer. And the being sent is the hope that we take to the world. May we live intentionally for Christ as we share the gospel. We do this. This is what he's inviting us to do. This is what he's praying for us to do. Let me close this morning by asking you the question I've been, I've been asking myself all week. This passage that we just read is the prayer of Christ. If you thought back on your life over the last week, the last six days since we, since we gathered last as a church, is there any piece of your life That could be an answer to Christ's prayer. Is there any moment that you can think of right now of like, yeah, that was an answer to Christ's prayer as I glorified him in this way. Can you tangibly think of that? Oh, no, this last week, this is where I fought for unity. This is where I loved and cared for others and fought for the unity of our church and the unity of my family. Can you think this last week of how you were an answer to that prayer? Can you think of a time this last week that you were living on mission, that you shared the gospel for him? Maybe you, maybe you can't think of anything of how you were an answer to Christ's prayer. But then thank him for his mercy. Because there's this new week that's coming. There's another chance for us to be an answer to Christ's prayer. That we would glorify him. That we would work and strive after unity. That we would live sent into a dark world. May we 
Praise God for his mercy of allowing us to follow him and to live for him and to be an answer to his very prayer. Pray with me. Lord, I pray for that very thing now. For us as a church. For those of us that have claimed Jesus Christ and we're following him as our Lord and our Savior. Lord, help us this week to glorify you with our thoughts, with our actions. May we show the world that you are more valuable to us than work or rest or play or money. You're more valuable to us than anything else. God, may we live in such a way that the world sees it. And may we continue to strive after unity that a lost world that is so divided and so struggling would look and say, I need that unity. I long for that unity. May we live in such a way that highlights that, just like the early church did in Rome. And we would have an impact for you and your kingdom. And then, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to live sent. Just like you were sent into the world, you have sent us into the world. Not looking at a world that was good, that needed to be shined up a little bit better. But you sent us into enemy territory. Knowing that this world is hurting and it's broken and it's lost. But that there's hope for it. There's hope. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that this week. And Lord, I also pray for those that are online or maybe in this room that have never trusted in you. They've longed for that unity. They've lived for vain glories and they're longing for you. That they would take that step of faith today to pray to you. And ask you to forgive them of their sins, sanctify them, and save them. God, you promise us in your word that if we pray, you will be faithful to answer that and to save. So would you do both today? Lord, would you sanctify us as a church? And Lord, would you save those who have not known you to the glory of your name? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand now. Let's sing to the one who has great mercy, whose mercy is more than the depths of our sins. Let's sing now.